Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the biz, trauma bonding. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Maron? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? Hi there. This is Anna David. You're listening to Light Hustler, a podcast about uh, really fun topics like addiction, alcoholism, mental illness, just overcoming things is the general idea, and then sharing about them, sharing your dark to find your light. Quick, quick thing. Um, I'm going to get right into this episode, but um, I, and I do a proper in- interview. Uh, pop. Excuse me, I actually know how to talk. A proper introduction for the guest once I start, but I wanted to let you know ahead of time this is one of those interviews that's from the Facebook Lives that I do. So, sound quality is Facebook Live. Talk to Facebook if you don't like that quality. Let's all do it. I've got some other things to say to Facebook, by the way. So, and we talk a lot about uh, my coaching program because Lauren is the most recent winner. Uh, She was in the last group and she was the one whose book proposal went to an agent and a publisher and the publisher acquired the book and it's coming out next year. So that's what we talk about. I am currently, if you're hearing this in August of 2018, accepting people for the September group. I still have a few spots left. So if you are at all interested, if you have ever thought you wanted to share your story, um, if you've been trying to write and not getting somewhere, if you want to blow your writing career up, go to alltherightmoves.net and check out the course. It is W-R-I-T-E. So it's A-L-L, the, right, W-R-I-T-E, moves.net not.com. Check it out. And now I give you Lauren. Well, here we are. Hi, you guys. I'm Anna David. I'm here with one of my favorite people who I'm only seeing for the second time in my life. This is Dr. Lauren <laughs> Casey. Um, in hey, fact, everyone. I, I just, yeah, Lauren, I, it's so weird. I really do feel like I know you very, very well, because that is the, when you're helping somebody with a book that is about their most personal experiences, it's yes. like know them without knowing them. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, so for you guys, Lauren is the most incredible person. So I'm going to tell you uh, briefly who she is. First of all, she's Dr. Lauren to you. She has worked professionally with several regional, national, and international organizations committed to the reduction of health inequalities in society. She has, uh, I'm just going to fast forward through some stuff. She has a PhD um, and she's worked, uh, developed programs and services for incarcerated women, has delivered workshops to women and youth at a variety of detention centers and federal and state prisons throughout California. 
And she has been published in numerous publications. She's sober how many years? 15. 15 years of sobriety after a crippling addiction uh, that ended with crack. And she is married to a man. She started writing because her then boss asked her to write this man who was in prison because he was sober. She was newly sober. She, as she was writing the first letter, she said to herself, I'm going to marry this man, which is a crazy thought to have when you're sending a letter to anybody. Now they've been married for how long? We have been married for 20 years now. They've been married for 20 years. And what I know, and you guys don't, is that they call each other honey and love because I heard them kind of shuffling around in the background as we were prepping for this. He was trying to get my equipment working. And it was all this, oh, honey, oh, honey, this, <laughs> So, so she's not lying when she says she's really happy. Um, and he was in prison for life. Now, the reason I know all of this is that Lauren just completed my coaching program, All the Right Moves. And the way it works is uh, 10 students at a time. We read all the proposals at the end, and they were all so good this time. And so it meant even more that Lauren had the winning proposal, which means that uh, I gave her proposal to a publisher and that publisher decided to acquire the book. And now it's coming out in 2019. Yes, How do you feel when I say that? Floored. I'm floored. I mean, if I didn't take your course, people have told me, oh, my God, you have to write. People, you know, it's a story people want to hear. Never in my wildest dreams. I mean, it was always on the back burner, right? I've been busy. I've been working. I've been, you know, finishing up school in 2015. And. When I got the news, Anna, I was floored. That's the only word I can think of. I was blown away. Did you cry? Uh, almost. Okay. I, I was between elation, crying, and just shock. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, you know, everybody's like, oh, have I, like they hear you're a writer, you teach writers, so like, have I got a story for you? Oh, everybody tells me I should write a book. And I'm always like, okay, okay, okay. So right. I met you at the As She Recovers event. And mm -hmm. And I'm sitting across from you and you're just beautiful and bright and smiley. And you say, oh, I've got a crazy story. And then you tell me, and I go, if you do not take my coaching program, I will not forgive you. You have got to write this book. Yes. Uh, yes. And that's, that's how it started. That's right. So, okay. So let's go back. So you're Canadian and you were raised in, um, they're Christian scientists, your family, correct? It, my parents were Christian science. Yes. And it was this upper middle class, uh, you know, sort of standard upbringing, would you say? Yes, very standard, very, you know, um, British. So everything was prim and proper and, you know, use utensils and not much talking, stiff upper lip, you know, that kind of upbringing, very proper. Yes. And are you, how many siblings do you have? I have two older brothers. Two older brothers. And did you get along mm -hmm. with them? I did. Actually, they're much older. They're 10 and 11 years older. So I came as a surprise. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother had me when she was like 43. Mm -hmm. And she was thrilled when she found out she had a girl because she always wanted a girl. But yes, so my brothers had moved out when I was like eight. So I was really an only child for a long time in the house. And so and you were t you were it was a religious upbringing. You were brought to church and all of that. Very, very church every Sunday. Um, they went to uh, church every Wednesday evening. 
they were devout. So they were very, very, I mean, that was a big part of their life. So I was raised around that. And yeah. you were, were you always kind of a little bit wild? Did you feel like you fit in in that family? Um, you know, I know you started drinking and doing all of that young. Yeah. I mean, I was basically a really shy, you'd never know that today, like people crack up because when I was a kid, I was so shy, I couldn't even say my name. Um, and I was a straight A student and I was really like just, you know, this quiet little thing. And then when I turned 14, it started to change. So I, I got more into rebellion and kind of acting out against the status quo, shall we say. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so... And what quiet kid do you think you were just born an alcoholic do you think it has to do with how you were born plus how you were raised like where did that come from I don't know I don't know if anybody's really born an alcoholic although I had the tendencies I knew when I was quite young I mean anything you gave me that made me feel good I would I would want more like chocolate pudding if I had one I'd need 15 I'd have you know ice cream floats I'd have like this sugar thing going on when I was a kid and, you know, it just made me, it got me out of, it just gave me that sense of exhilaration because there wasn't much communication in my family. So it was a kind of a way to act out and to, to find my own voice, I guess, in a lot of ways. And so you did. So, so instead of, <laughs> you said, uh, no, thanks. I'm going to go, you know, do this on my own. And then you discovered, this is the part that just fascinates me. So then you discovered that there is this whole lucrative career opportunity. And what yes. Yes. I was introduced to um, escorting um, when I was 19 by a female friend. I was never, you know, pimped into it or any of these stories you hear. My story is quite different. Um, I was fiercely independent and I just made a decision that I was making it on my own in the world. And so what that did for me was it gave me that sense of independence, but it also allowed me to, by then I was moved out so I could do whatever I wanted. And I had that rebellious thing going on anyway. So it started, I was 19. So I was technically an adult um, introduced by a friend. The first time you did it. Pardon? You drunk the first time you did it? Did you need liquid current or? You know what? I don't think I was drunk. I think maybe I smoked a joint. Um, right. You know, it was like back in those days. It was a little more mild. It didn't. I didn't graduate to cocaine till I was probably in my twenties. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was scary. I mean, anybody who's who's going into something like that. Fortunately, I had someone who really knew, like, knew the industry and. And girlfriends, right? Like not a guy who put me out on the street or anything. It was, I was introduced by mutual friends. So that's what makes the story unique too, because there's so many myths out there about, you know, that you're, you know, you've had this horrible upbringing or you've been molested. I never had those experiences. So my story is different in that way. And so, you, and you went in eyes wide open. You said, I know I, what this is about. I want to make this money. This is a conscious choice I'm making. I did. I owed somebody money and I had quit my first job as a secretary. Um, I was partying so much back then that I actually didn't quit. I just never went in. I didn't, I sh didn't end up going back. I didn't call in sick. I just didn't go in. So, I mean, that's the kind of rebellion I was experiencing back in when I was like 18, 19. So, you know, it, it just morphed into that from there. 
but I always had like these double lives going on. Like it was never just sex work. I also, you know, as time went on, I worked for the electric company for five years. I had this like triple quadruple life going on. Right. Um, so yeah, I was, I was playing many roles and somehow trying to maintain my own sense of who I was, which was tough. So, okay, so you're working, so what did, what did you do at the electric company? You were doing like PR or marketing or something like that? It was like, it was like more, it was more like secretarial stuff. I mean, I didn't want to go to college when I was, when I moved out of home, ironically, I have a PhD now, which is even more funny. Um, but back then I said, forget it. I don't, I don't want to go to college. I just want to, I just want to be a secretary. I just want to do something that's like easy, you know? So I took typing in high school, I remember. And by the way, now I type 90 words a minute, so writing a dissertation was effortless in that <laughs> It's a great skill to have as a writer. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I remember when I graduated from college, uh, Condé Nast, uh, the publishing company, everybody wanted to work there, and you couldn't get an interview unless you could type 90 words a minute. Right. Which right. is so antiquated. And I, I know, can, right? Now I can type crazy fast. Um, I'm sure you can. So, okay. So, how many years so so this started off like the first time you j- jumped in a guy's car it was like that but then it got super glamorous and exciting what was that yeah i mean you know it's not i mean by the time i was like in my late 20s first of all i had boyfriends too so i mean i had clients and then i had this boyfriend for like 6 years he, that was great we we're engaged to be married but it didn't work And then, um, you know, I continued in the industry and I eventually met more and more very, very wealthy um, clients and ultimately ended up meeting who became my boyfriend, who was not a client. And I was with him for four years. And, you know, I mean, we just all we did was travel and party. And, you know, he was just like me. It was like us, me combined. Both of us are the same. So it was really wild, you know, but it was almost like I just. I mean, my shining, knight in shining armor arrived, right? Which it turned into be a nightmare. But that was four years later because we were both equally as crazy. So you know, that part yeah. of the proposal reminds me of, you know, that part of Boogie Nights where the guy is listening to Journey and, and firing off that gun and he's like, hi, do you know that part? <laughs> I do, I do. That's a great that, movie. What that part of your proposal reminds me of. Yeah. So, he did follow me with a loaded gun one night, actually, in this palatial cabin, um, just psychotically out of out of his mind on cocaine. And that's, I mean, that's what we did. We just partied. It was an endless party that ultimately started self-destructing. So, yeah, let's talk about how your addiction escalated. So, you know, you smoked pot when you were in high school. And then how did it get to the point that you were smoking crack? Well, yeah, no, it sounds so funny. Um, so beginning with marijuana, alcohol, um, acid, mushrooms, all of those, like I pretty well did them all. And then I was introduced to cocaine, as I said, in my 20s. And that was a big part of the life I was in. It was like really high life kind of, you know, traveling around and having unlimited quantities of money to do whatever I wanted, which, you know, some people when they quote unquote, hip bottom, they're on the street kind of scouring for their next fix. And that wasn't my story. I was like, you know, I was making more money than I knew what to do with. I was around more money than I knew what to do with. And ultimately just 
completely self-destructed in the process. Yeah. And do you remember, uh, by the way, I know that viewers are here because it's showing numbers, but talk to us, you guys, ask us questions, say that you're here. Um, you know, we want to hear from you. So, so do you remember the first time that you decided to smoke crack? Like when you were like, did you have those? Okay. I <laughs> do this. And then one day you find yourself doing it kind of thing. Yes. 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 Of course. Um, and I remember I was with friends and we were, I was introduced and it was just this, oh my God, this like, you know, feeling like I had an orgasm times a million from this cocaine that I then learned how to cook. And, you know, I mean, it was a really high time in my life, figuratively and literally. Um, and so I, you know, I, I mean, I got a bachelor's degree smoking crack. Who does that? You know, um, I got into a first year master's program, but I was always all or nothing. So I lived my life very, very, very always on the edge. And I always needed to, you know, kind of just keep moving and shaking and not finding me. And so where I'm at now, it's so much different because the book um, starts to talk about that moment when I did reach that point of finally, okay, 10 years later, I've been trying this, it's not working. So then finally getting into recovery. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So what was the bottom? Well, let's, let's picture this. Let's picture um, Long Beach, California, no tell motel. I believe it's called the state motel. Um, I am in with a dealer, his girlfriend. I'm on probably day five or six using straight, um, felt another overdose coming on, didn't fall to the floor. The police came surrounding the building. They were looking for somebody, uh, who was turning tricks in the same area who these girls would end up in Tijuana and women. Um, the police didn't arrest me. And I just, I just, I, I picked up the phone and I called this 1-800 number and it was one of the rehabs, many rehabs I've been through over a period of 10 years. Um, they sent two people who were also former cocaine abusers to come and get me. And they ended up like I fought with them. I wasn't ready. No addict is ever really ready. I wasn't done, you know, and uh, I was arguing with them. And finally I got in the car and ended up in detox. And, you know, I, I still remember that moment like it happened yesterday. Like just that moment of looking to my right and seeing the woman I was just smoking crack with getting ready to turn her next trip. Now I didn't, I didn't reach that point. I wasn't on the streets. I didn't get to that point. I almost did, but the guy I was with for some reason blocked the door and said, you're not going anywhere. And I mean, that's divine intervention, I think, because I could have easily been one of those girls. So, so you said you had been to about 10 rehabs before. So you would just sort of, would you, would people throw you in there? Would you just go, I can't do this anymore? Were you suicidal? Like what would bring you to the places to check in? I mean, really, I mean, I put myself in for the most part. I had my first intervention actually with my family when I was quite young. I was only 20, I think. And rehab wasn't even in the equation. It was just like, clean yourself up you know, move into your brothers. Um, and then I guess it was around 94. I realized like, this is crazy, you know, my, but I still was having too much fun. It wasn't to the point where, 
I mean, it was still working as functional. And when you're functional, it's that much harder because when you're functional and you have a lot of money, it's even that much harder. So, so that was kind of my journey. Yeah. What ended up happening with the guy that reminds me of the guy from Boogie Nights? Did you guys have some torturous, terrible breakup? Well, no, actually we, I, I left him. Um, I ended up going back up to Canada. We were living in the U S he was American and I went back up to Canada and enrolled in the master's program. We stayed really good friends. Um, and I got word about five years ago that he had died. Actually, he, he had stopped drinking and using as well. And I think he had stopped for quite a few years and then decided it was a good idea to have a drink and ended up having an accident. I think he hit his head and ended up not like having a concussion and dying. So, yeah. So that's what happened to him. And so that, that night that we're talking about where you're in this, so I just want to make sure I get it. So you're in the motel. These cops, they're looking for a girl who's missing. Yeah. Yeah. You're about to overdose. Yeah. I, I had just, I had just come out of a near overdose. I was literally grabbing the walls and I didn't, I didn't fall. And I just remember vividly, you know, the guy that was in the room and it's dark, right? It's like seedy. It's gross. It's like the Ritz Carlton days are gone, man. Like at the end it was over. So, and I just remember he was like laying back, just watching me, like not, he wasn't going to call 911. Right. And I realized, wow, this is where my life is today. And so I survived that. I didn't fall. Um, And then 10 minutes later, there was a knock on the door and it was the police. So I thought for sure, I'm going to go to jail because there's like cocaine all over the place. Um, But they, I mean, they didn't, they were looking for these women that were going missing. So you know, it kind of just gave me that wake up call, like, okay, I didn't die. I'm not going to jail. I have a dime in my pocket. I'm wearing someone else's clothes. Like I'm, you know, 80 pounds soaking wet. I mean, I think maybe I'll pick up the phone and right. call someone. Yeah. And so then the people from the rehab came. It was a rehab you had already been to before. Yes. And then they, by the time they're there, you're like, no, 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 no. I don't want this. And they yeah. said, bye-bye. Yeah. You yeah, no, I, I, I fought with them. I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not done. I knew there was a lot more drugs. No addict is ever really done. Right. Um, and they said, look, we, you know, you've been doing it your way for 10 years. You've gone to like the finest, most luxurious rehab centers. It's your way is not working. Right. Like you're coming with us. And by this time I didn't have all the money. The other guy that was supporting me financially and really in my corner had just like cut me off completely so it gave me the dignity to hit that point yeah. where I where I was and finally I said all right I saw that girl getting ready to get in a car and that's when I said okay wait oh okay I'm gonna get in the car and they drove me to detox Wood Glen it was very glamorous <laughs> and then, you know <laughs> so that that was it that was your last moment that was the last moment when I finally realized that I could not stop. I couldn't stop. And so then you get out of treatment and you started working at that treatment center. Is that what happened? I did. I was working really part-time because I didn't, I mean, first of all, I was in the U S I'm from Canada. So I, you know, I had to do odd jobs and stuff. So you've got to understand like 
I was doing odd jobs there, really just like filing and stuff. And then eventually I started cleaning houses for cash. Like that was really humbling. Um, and I remembered thinking like I used to pay people to do that. Here I am scrubbing toilets, but you know, it's everything that needed to happen because I finally felt like I was leveled, you know, it was like a leveling of my pride and, you know, um, yeah. So that was the beginning. I mean, literally starting ground zero, my first car was given to me and it, I mean, you couldn't even, I mean, the people would get in and the dash would fall out. I mean, it was like, it was comical, you know, because, um, it's not what I was used to, but it's exactly what I needed. And so your boss says to you one day, there's this guy in prison. I'd love for you to write. And you say, okay. Yeah, it was, it was so weird. I mean, I made a decision by then I was almost one year of sobriety and I made a decision to like, not, not date. Um, had a lot of men over the years and I kind of decided I was just going to focus on me and not get involved with anyone. So I really didn't. I went on maybe a couple of dates the first year, but he wanted me to write to this guy because he was so busy. Mm-hmm. Their, their place was getting all these overflow from like Betty Ford and other treatment centers. So he asked me to write to this gentleman named Ruben um, on his behalf and just let him know when he gets out, he would love for him to speak. And there's all these meetings where in the area in Long Beach. And, you know, that's what I did. I wrote to this random guy in prison, not even, I mean, he's not even anyone I would be remotely interested in. But as I went to drop the letter in, there was a voice in my head. And I swear as clear as daylight that said, you're going to marry this man. And I laughed out loud. Like I sent the letter just on behalf of blah, 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 blah. I'm writing to tell you where the meetings are. I'm coming up to a year. I let him know. I noticed he was in recovery. I think he had eight years at the time. And that's how it started. And he just simply responded with congratulations on your one year. And that was like the seed planted. Right. Um, For the next 10 years, we, well, I mean, that's a whole, that's the whole rest of the book, which stay tuned because there's a lot. Um, 10 years that that you guys were writing letters and um, not, and not together. Well, we couldn't have conjugal visits. So you're talking somebody who was an escort who's now a born-again virgin um, for 10 years. Like, we could only, like, hold hands on top of the table and and sit a certain way. And one time to kiss at the beginning, one time kiss at the end. I had to learn to dress like a nun to go visit him because the rules are so strict, right? Um, but, you know, again... As I got to know him and as he got to know me and we started like sharing, you know, parts of ourselves that were very, I mean, I would, it took months. And finally, after about nine months, we started to realize, wow, you know, this is, there's something here. There's something here. I'm, I'm not quite sure what it is, but fast forward to the next year to the day I met him face to face in the prison. Mm-hmm. So that was, um, yeah, I mean, that was like 2001. So, so it was literally a year after you sent that letter. That's how you guys timed it, the meeting? Yes, it was literally a year to the day of my one. So I was two years of sobriety when I met him. 
How do you know you're falling in love with someone that you haven't met? Good question. I mean, I mean, it's the old art of snail mail, man, like letters. And eventually we started talking on the phone once a week. And I don't know. It was just, it was just, it was time. It was time. It was like, now everything's so quick, right? Like you meet somebody or, you know, you jump, whatever you get lost, whatever with us. It wasn't like that. It was like getting to know somebody really, really deeply as friends mm-hmm. and then gradually and incrementally, you know, getting to know them more than friends. And then like the following year after that, we got married. So who would have thought, right? You get married in prison. Were you like, whoa, this is not where I expected my wedding day to take place? Uh, not at all. Not at all. You can't wear white. Um, you know, I mean, it was so non-traditional, like everything non-traditional you can imagine. We, ha- I mean, again, it was one time to kiss. There were no photos. The rabbi married us. I mean, my husband's black. I'm Irish and we're married by a rabbi in a prison. I mean, it's just, can you visualize? I still remember the day they, they made my maid of honor cut out the underwire in her bra because you can't wear that through the security. Like it's just so surreal, you know, and he did not get on on his knee to propose because that's not allowed either. Right. So he was supposed to be in for life because explain what happened the reason that he was in prison yeah well he was a kid actually he was only um i think he was 16 and they had broken into a house and um went to rob the place and what happened was there was a guy there and his crime partner had gotten into a fist fight with a guy so they took off but it, long story short the guy ended up dying and so they were charged there was no trial there was no i mean basically judge ordered seven to life um so there he was 17 years old off to you know dvi tracy which is called gladiator school and back then he was a fighter and he was like really you know so from from there he went to san quentin from san quentin and what happened was a lot of juveniles were doing way more time than allotted because the governors that were stepping in started saying never, never, no one's getting out tough on crime. Mm-hmm. Um, no one, no one with the word L in their sentence, i.e. life will ever get out. And then what started, so long story short, he did 32 years. He finally got out when he was almost 50. So mm-hmm. from 17 to almost 50, so um, when- married him you didn't know that he was getting out you did not think he was getting I, out I wasn't sure I honestly wasn't sure and I don't know it was like this deep faith it was um you know a lot of people said like what do you you know what are you doing and I just knew I just knew deep down inside I knew I knew he would be out he's a he's an incredible if you were to meet him you would not even know that he did that long. He's just so refined and such a fine, gentle spirit. People that have met him will back me up on that. So, and so then you get your PhD and, um, and you decide to focus your work on uh, sex workers and, and it has to do with imprisonment, right? What is your, what was your dissertation on? 
Well, my dissertation actually was Canadian brothels. <laughs> um, I interviewed uh, managers and owners across Canada who, who and looked at the workplace safety that happens in off-street environments. So um, because it was Canadian University, I did that for my dissertation, but I had been doing a lot of work with the population right. for years prior to that, um, helping, not just helping people transition out, but helping people that are still in and trying to destigmatize the profession as a whole, because that's the secrets are what the stigma is what damages more than anything, you know? And uh, so I've been really vocal about being an activist for the workers' rights. Well, and it's not unlike how the stigma around addiction. Um, exactly. Prison, right? Yeah, like yeah. All um, kinds of stigmas, yeah. And in, so, yeah, that's why I think it's so important that we get out there and share these things that, uh, that we're supposed to be ashamed of so that we can mm -hmm. help other people to share them. So, okay, this year's so fascinating. We have to get close to wrapping up. But so, so basically you wrote, you put all of this brilliantly into a book proposal. And I have to say, Lauren, here's the thing is you were very busy when we were doing this class and oh I, I didn't, you blew me away with this proposal. I just didn't, I didn't know you were hustling it that hard, you know? Um, because you were kind of quiet. You were not that regularly in touch with me. A lot of the students are in touch with me all the time. Yeah. And you just blew me away with it. I was busy. I did have uh, great helpers in the final stages. Um, the one who's a journalist, Jody Patterson. The other one, Tanya Antichevic. She is, oh, I her and I, yeah. yes, you know her. Her and I went to San Diego and literally round the clock got that thing and then the following week i kept editing editing and then it was sent off so i mean i i've had help and i'm so grateful that i did your course because i never would have this never would have come to fruition but you, you know killed it you just rose to the occasion and so the book is called remind me of the title breaking the chains Drugs, Millionaires, and the Prisoner Who Set Me Free. Oh, such a good title. It's coming out in the spring of 2019? Yes. Yes, that is correct. And um, so is Paul being tough on you? Is the publisher giving you really tough deadlines? <laughs> um, well, he sent me the contract, so that's good. Um, I'm speaking with him actually on Monday to right. square up some deadlines and get the ball rolling. But I do plan on writing through the summer. I'm taking some time off that I'm just going to focus on writing. So right. I'm excited. Yeah. Well, anybody who's listening, um, we are st the program is full right now. I mean, I have no idea when you're hearing this, but we're recording this in July of 2018. But I am taking people for the September 2018 group. Go to alltherightmoves.net um, if you want to find out more about it. Hold on. I will put that URL up on the screen. And... Um, and if you want um, to know more about this fascinating lady, because uh, that's all the right moves, and then Lauren, <laughs> so go there for information about the program, and then for more about Lauren, go to laurencasey.com and look out for her book, uh, Breaking the Chains, which will be out from Zephyr Bookshelf in 2019. So that's it. Lauren, thank you so, so, so much. Thank you, Anna. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, take care. Take Bye. Care.